We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. Hey everyone, we're pumped to be able to share an exclusive trailer with you after the show. From Blue Wire Studios comes Golden Goal, stories of soccer legends. Each Monday, two new episodes will take a look into some of soccer's biggest stars and the moments that define their careers. All narrated by Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's Always Cheating podcast. From Haaland, Zaltan, Messi, Raponi, and many more, each episode will focus on the historical plays and personalities that make the sport great. If you've been liking this show, A Brief History About Baseball, you should definitely check this out. So stay tuned after the episode and check out Golden Goal, Stories of Soccer Legends, wherever you get your podcasts. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, a brief history, the Midsummer Classic. Sports are coming back and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight or check out the odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. If you can't wait for your favorite team to come back, Bet Online has hundreds of odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. The 2020 All-Star Game was scheduled for this coming Tuesday, but obviously with coronavirus, it has been canceled. 
This is only the second time an All-Star game has been canceled since its creation in 1933. The other was in 1945, which was canceled due to World War II. Through all the strikes, baseball still managed to hold an All-Star game. In 1981, the strike that lasted from mid-June through July and created the two half-seasons, they rescheduled the All-Star game for August, and it got record low TV ratings. The 94 and 95 strike was well-timed as far as the All-Star game was concerned. Those went off without a hitch. I'm not saying baseball should have found a way to have the game this year. Logistically, it would have been a nightmare, and frankly, not enough people care about the All-Star game anymore to go out of your way during a pandemic to have one. But I bring it up to demonstrate that the All-Star game being canceled is rare. It's only the second time in its history that it's been canceled. Baseball usually finds a way to have its Midsummer Classic. The first ever MLB All-Star game happened on July 6, 1933. It took place at the White Sox Comiskey Park in Chicago, and the American League defeated the National League 4-2. The rosters were a who's who of Hall of Famers. 25, including managers and coaches, were at the game. Never before had there been a gathering of this many big baseball names on one field for one game. Of course, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig batted 3-4 in the American League lineup. The Babe hit the first ever home run in All-Star game play, a two-run shot in the third inning off Cardinals pitcher Bill Hallahan. Garrig went 0-2, but he did walk twice. Yankees ace Lefty Gomez started and was credited with the win for tossing three scoreless innings. The other lefty, Grove, also pitched for the AL, and Hall of Famer Carl Hubble pitched for the National League. Yankees outfielder Ben Chapman, who was one of the few non-Hall of Famers on the field, led off for the AL. The American League squad also had Al Simmons hitting fifth, and Jimmy Fox, Bill Dickey, Tony Lazari, and Earl Averill on the bench. The NL roster featured Frankie Frisch, Chick Haffey, Chuck Klein, Bill Terry, Pi Trainer, and Gabby Hartnett, among others. Hall of Fame Giants manager John McGraw came out of retirement to manage the NL team, and athletics manager Connie Mack was in charge of the AL club. The game was supposed to be a one-time thing, billed as the game of the century. The goal was to promote baseball and create some goodwill during the dark days of the Great Depression. After baseball had an uber-successful 1920s decade, Largely thanks to Babe Ruth, attendance around the league dropped 40% from 1930 to 1933, and player salaries fell by 25%. Economically, the country was in shambles. A large portion of the general public was unemployed and living meal to meal, so attending a baseball game was out of the question. Baseball was entertainment, and there was no money for frivolous activities during the height of the Depression. Teams experimented with all sorts of things to drive attendance. One article I read said that teams tried free grocery giveaways to try and drive attendance, and another had a women get in free promotion. None of it really made a difference. Again, also remember that the first night game didn't happen until 1935, so all of these games were during the day. The All-Star game was originally proposed by the Chicago Tribune because Chicago's mayor wanted to have a grand sporting event to coincide with the World's Fair, which was celebrating the city's 100th anniversary. Sports editor Ark Ward is credited with coming up with the brilliant idea. After some lobbying and finagling, the game was approved by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis and heavily promoted around the country. In May, the Associated Press wrote, The baseball fan's dream, a game between the pick of the American and National League talent, will be sponsored July 6th by the Chicago Tribune as a World's Fair feature. It became possible through the cooperation of 16 club owners. The fans of the country will select the teams by vote, to help settle arguments over the relative merits of the players in the two leagues for the first time in the history of the game. And that part was important. The Tribune also came up with the idea to involve the public by having them vote for starting lineups. 
Ballots were printed in newspapers nationwide and several hundred thousand votes were collected and all hand counted by the Tribune Sports Department. Babe Ruth, of course, got the most love with over 100,000 votes. As July 6th neared, the hype grew and grew. The excitement was that of a World Series. It was a smashing success for baseball. By involving the fans and promising the most star-studded game in history, the event sold out, it was widely listened to on the radio, and it was the most talked-about baseball game of the summer. It wasn't rare to play in-season exhibitions back then. Usually, they were held in non-MLB cities to promote the game. On Saturday, the Yankees could have been playing the Browns in St. Louis, and then on Sunday traveled to play an exhibition in Indianapolis or Des Moines. It's actually amazing how much baseball these guys played back then. The regular season was 154 games, but with exhibitions and barnstorming tours, the big names would play over 200 games a year. I'm putting games in quote because they weren't necessarily your traditional nine-inning games, but they were still out there on the field performing. I just started reading The Big Fella by Jane Levy, and the book focuses around the October 1927 barnstorming tour that Ruth and Gehrig went on. It started the day after the World Series ended. I was amazed. If there was a dollar to be earned, they wasted no time doing so. But the major difference with those normal exhibitions in the barnstorming and this new all-star game was the star power. For most people, players included, it was the first time to see the opposing league in person. They may have only read about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, but now they got to witness them hitting back-to-back in the lineup against the best the NL had to offer. MLB realized the potential they had with this game and began to organize another for 1934 and every year to follow. Columnist Joe Kieran wrote, It's true that the All-Star Game is a glorified exhibition of baseball, but the ballplayers have their own reputations at stake anytime they go to bat or take the field, and the league rivalry counts for more than a little in these clashes. So yes, the players represented themselves, but they also represented their team, their home city, and their league. Which league was better, NL or AL? The senior circuit or the junior circuit? This was a real discussion. If you rooted for an American League club, you thought that brand of baseball was better, and vice versa. This was a chance to finally answer that question that baseball fans had. The game also grew in popularity because it was taken seriously. By the time the 1941 game arrived, the lifetime series score was 5-3 in favor of the American League, but both teams wanted to win and both brought a grudge to the game. The 41 game is considered to be one of the best ever, remembered for Ted Williams' walk-off three-run blast to give the AL a 7-5 win. They were down by two entering the ninth. The AL loaded the bases with one out. Joe DiMaggio, who was hitting ahead of Teddy Ballgame, beat out a double play to keep the game alive. Williams then smashed the walk-off homer to stun the National League. He clapped his hands as the ball cleared the fence and then gave a little bit of a hop as he rounded the bases in excitement. That's all pitches. Williams swings as a high drive going deep, deep. It is a home run against the tip of the right field fan. A tremendous home run that brought in three runs and turn what looked to be a National League whip into an American League 7-5 win. It no doubt meant a lot. The New York Times wrote, Joy was rampant in the camp of the American leaguers. They were expressively riotous in their appraisal of the Williams-Homer and the satisfaction of the victory over the National League. And meanwhile, in the NL clubhouse, the scene was one of surly irritation. Bats and gloves and towels and caps were kicked around as the players trooped off the field. To a man, the squad was furious at having victory snatched from its grasp. 41 is obviously remembered for one of the greatest baseball seasons ever, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak and Ted Williams hitting 406, but the All-Star Game ranks right up there with great moments from that season. 
As the years have gone on, the All-Star Game festivities and rules have changed. For example, rosters have expanded dramatically. There were 18 players per team in 1933. By 1939, it was 25 per team, and now we're up to 34. One reason for its immediate success was the involvement of the fan in selecting the roster. Originally, fans voted on the nine starters, and managers selected the additional nine players. But in 1935, that was taken away. Managers and coaches selected the entire squad. From what I can gather, this was because baseball wanted to control who attended. They wanted the most prominent players from each team to play and didn't want to leave that to chance. But in 1947, the starter vote was given back to the fan. And like with anything, chicanery eventually occurred. Cincinnati Reds fans stuffed the ballot boxes in 1957, electing seven Red starters to the team. It was found that the Cincinnati Enquirer distributed pre-marked ballots in their Sunday paper. Commissioner Ford Frick replaced three Reds with Willie Mays, Stan Musial, and Hank Aaron. That's fine, all those guys should have been all-stars in the first place, but then he also took the fan vote away again, and it wasn't until 1969 that they got it back. The main reason the fans were involved again is because the game had been losing interest. Baseball decided to hold two annual all-star games from 1959 to 62. The games were sometimes held three or four weeks apart and in American and National League stadiums, However, there were exceptions. Like in 1960, the games were just two days apart, the first one in Kansas City and the second in New York. And to give you an idea of the saturation, just 38,362 people attended the game at Yankee Stadium. That's about two-thirds capacity for an all-star game. The two-game format did water down the product, but it was created with good intent. The money raised for the second game was used for the player pension funds, which had been severely underserved for years. There were other problems as well. The players started to care less and less each year. In 1965, it was written, The winners are pleased but not ecstatic. The losers wish they had won, but they aren't deeply hurt. I'm guessing that's the vibe today as well. But that didn't mean nobody took it seriously. Pete Rose played baseball at one speed, and that gear was on full display in 1970. The game was tied in the bottom of the 12th when Charlie Hustle rounded third looking to score on a Jim Hickman single. And suddenly... Ray Fossey was all that stood between Rose and a National League win. The collision left Fossey with a separated shoulder and Rose unapologetic about his effort to win. I did start to slide, but he left me no recourse because there was no place to slide. And there's no sense in ever sliding into a bag if you can't get the bag. The 1970 Pete Rose-Ray Fossey collision at home plate happened in the 12th inning, giving the NL a 5-4 win. Rose was playing as usual 110% and in front of his home fans in the newly opened Riverfront Stadium, and Fossey's career was changed forever. The play has been used to demonstrate that the game mattered in this era, but that's not entirely true. Rose was vilified for it over the years, but only a select few players like Pete Rose would have done the exact same at that time. Not everyone was going to barrel into Ray Fossey like Pete Rose did. The All-Star Game did start to rebound, though, from public interest. Maybe not to the 30s, 40s, and 50s level, but certainly more than the previous decade. MLB still had the drawing card of the most star-studded game of the year, and while it was possible to follow stars in other league, it's not as easy as it is today. There's no interleague play and obviously no MLB TV and social media and stuff like that. Fans had to wait for the occasional nationally televised game or the World Series, but this gave them a sneak peek in the summer. Since the return of the fan vote in 1969, it has remained part of the product with a few tweaks here and there, and of course, more suspicion of ballot stuffing, like in 2015 with the Kansas City Royals. Awards and other events to supplement the game have been added, 
At the 1962 game, the first MVP award was given. A few players have won it twice, including Willie Mays, Cal Ripken Jr., and Mike Trout. The Home Run Derby event debuted in 1985. The main reason was for ratings, but, you know, also, chicks dig the long ball. The event has changed big time over the years. Originally, it was four to ten players from both leagues, and they were given two innings of five outs to hit as many homers as possible. And there could be ties, which made no sense, but it happened twice before they changed it. I think about some of my favorite memories as a child uh, from baseball, and a lot of them are from home run derbies. Ken Griffey Jr. looking like a badass, Mark McGuire hitting missiles over the monster at Fenway in 1999, Sammy Sosa sweating like a maniac trying to hit the ball a thousand feet, of course Josh Hamilton at Yankee Stadium, and then the Yankees players who have won it, Tino in 97, Giambi 02, Cano in 2011, and Aaron Judge in 2017. But then there was the biggest change to the All-Star game of all. It counts, starting in 2003 because the 0-2 game finished in a tie when both teams ran out of players to use. This was especially embarrassing for Commissioner Bud Seeley because the game was in his hometown of Milwaukee. But in my opinion, even more embarrassing is that baseball actually had an exhibition count towards something so important as home field advantage in the World Series. Thankfully, it ended after 2016. All the changes didn't really do much to drive ratings. The biggest factor to this was interleague play. Bigger than players not taking it seriously or games ending in ties. The novelty of seeing the other league was gone. And there was no more real AL-NL rivalry. Players regularly changed teams, signing elsewhere in free agency. And the only real difference in the 90s and 2000s between the two leagues was the DH rule. And on the other side of the spectrum from the 2002 tie was 2008, which was the fourth time the Yankees hosted, the second time at the old Yankee Stadium, The original stadium hosted it twice in 1939 and 1960, but the 08 game was the longest game in All-Star Game history, lasting 15 innings, taking 4 hours and 50 minutes, but they had to finish it because it counted. Michael Young pops it up, right field, Corey Hart, Morneau tags at third, here we go, throw by Hart to the plate, and safe, this game is over. Morno scores, Terry Francona exhales, and the American League has won again, and they will have home field advantage in the upcoming World Series, and there is nobody happier in this park than Terry Francona. Now, Terry Francona, not the only guy exhaling. He's got company. Avoiding having to play another inning in this game, four hours and 50 minutes after it started, is over with the AL winning it in 15, 4-3. You heard Buck and McCarver talking about how relieved Francona was to have the game end, to not have to figure out how to play another inning. The game was becoming more of a stressor for managers and coaches than it was enjoyment, and that's just not right. In 2012, Chipper Jones actually hit the nail on the head. He said if you want to really ride everything on it, take the nine best players from each league and let them go at it for nine innings. Don't give them an at-bat here and an at-bat there, or an inning here and an inning there, because that doesn't really tell you anything. He's right. Another trend that had become common over the previous two decades was that everyone needed to be represented in the game. Starting pitcher would throw an inning or two, teams would rotate through multiple catchers, and relievers were used abundantly. Players would only get into the game maybe a pinch-hitting opportunity in the fifth or sixth inning, but that's it. It felt like an exhibition, so it was treated like an exhibition. That, coupled with the novelty being gone, is why the All-Star game is not what it was in the 30s and 40s. 
Overall in history, the American League leads the series 45-43 to and with two ties, but it has been a series of streaks. By the end of the 40s, the AL was up 12-4, to but then the NL stormed back starting in the 50s. From 1963 all the way to 1982, the NL lost only one time. Then in the late 90s, the AL started to dominate, winning 12 in a row with the 0-2 tie in the middle, and then since 2013, the AL has not lost. You can say that that means the AL is better than the NL, but one half-assed game in the middle of the season is not really going to tell you which league is better. It's more random than anything. It's still a fun event and gives a nice bump to an otherwise slow sports calendar in normal years. One thing I've been thinking about, though, we've heard the NBA might shift their season so the playoffs are in early July and August. If that happens, will the baseball all-star game get buried even more, or will they do something different to compete, like move it on the calendar or try and make it more interesting somehow? The Yankees have always been well-represented in the game. In the first all-star game in 1933, they had four starters, a bench player, and a coach at the game. Mickey Mantle is one of only three players in history to reach base safely in seven straight all-star games, from 1954 to 1960. Derek Jeter won the All-Star Game MVP in 2000, and then the World Series MVP the same year, the only player to accomplish this feat. Ten teams have hosted the All-Star Game and World Series in the same year, but the Yankees have done it the most, three times, in 39, 60, and 77. When the game was at the old Yankee Stadium in 2008, I thought it had a little extra juice. Maybe I'm biased because it's just, I'm a Yankees fan, but I think if and when the new stadium hosts, I expect the same kind of vibes. Thanks for listening. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. Messi takes everybody on. Messi has got it! From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. 2-0, and he's... What a World Cup for Megan Rapinoe! From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair... Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.